So, Father, thank you so much for the, the message of the cross. We do believe your report. And God, I thank you for calling us to not only believe it, but to also proclaim it in our city that so desperately needs the message of the cross. I pray t- as we take a, b- a bit of time just to unpack some thoughts from the Bible, I pray you would speak to us. Thank you among us. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of the first people to see Jesus alive was Peter. And he was one of the twelve, and he, he saw Jesus resurrected, and it transformed his existence. Um, Peter, 30 years after him seeing Jesus alive, pens his, his first book, which he called First Peter. He did another one, which was called Second Peter. Great names, eh? Uh, I guess if he did a third one, he might, have, he might have called that third Peter, but he didn't. He didn't. Just two. So 30 years after he saw the risen Jesus and it changed his life, he wrote down First Peter. And First Peter was written specifically to people who were going through the toughest ordeals of their life. You read First Peter, you're reading little segments, and you get the kind of gist that, whoa, wait a minute, these people are facing intense persecution. Most of you know, just back from India maybe three weeks ago, and those folks that I was with in India have, thankfully, it's eased up for them, but they've come through seasons of intense persecution. Solomon, if you looked on Twitter this morning, I posted a photo of him baptizing some people at their morning services in India. And Solomon himself, in 2007, 2008, was publicly attacked in stones three times, survived that stuff. This is a young man, similar to myself, three kids, just, just a young family, just trying to make a difference and, and being attacked because he's a believer. And Peter, 30 years after he saw Jesus alive, wrote First Peter to people who were going through intense hostility and persecution. And uh, so I guess, question, what would you write to people who were going through stuff like that? What would you write to bring comfort and encouragement to them? You know, what he doesn't do is he doesn't give them a glib, oh, it'll all work out okay. He doesn't do that. In fact, if you read on in First Peter, in chapter 4, he actually, he kind of foresees looming on the horizon an even more intense wave of persecutions on its way. So he didn't, he didn't even say it's going to get okay. He says, actually, folks, I think it's going to get worse. And he was right. Historically, it did. Nero was about to unleash his persecution. That's that horrendous emperor, Nero, uh, that, that just did horrendous atrocities against Christians. And so Peter got it right. It was about to get worse. So that wasn't how he comforted these Christians. How did he comfort the people who were going through this tough time? Well, probably with the same comfort that Peter himself had received, something that triggered comfort and strength in him to keep going. So how do you get comfort? How do you find strength to go through the hardest times of your life? Um, And here's where Peter starts. He starts his book talking about the thing that changed his life and gave him strength. And that is none other than the resurrection. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth. Say new birth into a living hope, say living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that will never perish, 
spoil or fades, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power. Say, I'm being shielded by God's power. Until the coming of salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. So he's acknowledging the stuff they're going through. So I'm seeing in these verses three things, three ways the resurrection helps you face the toughest times in your life. Three ways it helps you, gives you the perseverance just to keep going when everything within you wants to quit. The resurrection impacts your past, it impacts your future, and it impacts your present. So first of all, it impacts your past. It means past is forgiven. Verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus. Becoming a Christian is not turning over a new leaf. It's not just adopting a new set of values. Becoming a Christian, it's, it's, it's not about just choosing one religion among many. All right, I'll pick this one. Becoming a Christian is literally new birth. It's meeting God and being transformed by that experience of meeting God. It's not, becoming a Christian is not about I'm changing myself. Okay, I'll change myself. I'll become a better person. It's not about that. It's about saying to God, I give you permission to change me. It's a new birth. It's a work of God, not a work of man. That's what the Bible's saying. The new birth comes through the resurrection of Jesus. Don't know if anyone see, watches DIY SOS. Anyone seen DIY SOS? Okay. And it's usually kind of, it zooms in in a family, maybe who've gone through some crisis. Like the one where the the husband and wife and the kids, they bought this huge home. They've got all these dreams of renovating this home. And then some point in the middle of it, there's a tragedy strikes and the husband dies and the wife's left with the kids and the renovation has to be put on hold and they're having to live in this substandard house and she's just trying to hold it all together with all these kids. And then along comes a DIY SOS team with Nick Knowles and they come in and they just take on the project. She gives them permission, come in. And they just come into their house and they take on the project and they do a renovation. They transform it on the inside. And you see them at the end of the program and they come back and see the house. And they haven't seen it. They open their eyes and they, and it's quite emotional. You see them weeping and they're blown away. And the kids are like, wow, look, I've got this rocket-shaped bed. And, you know, everything's just like done up and they're just blown away. This is the renovation they'd hoped to do and they couldn't have done, and then someone came in and did it for them. It was just amazing. And, you know, in one sense, nothing changed. You look at the outside of the house, it just looked exactly the same. Same bit of land looked the same on the outside, but on the inside, it was unrecognizable. And that's exactly what happens when the Bible talks about a new birth. You come alive on the inside. You just give God the permission, and he comes right on in, and he changes you from the inside. That's what God does. You remain you. Still, in many ways, you look the same, just as handsome on the outside. But on the inside, you're a new person, transforms you. 
And what's interesting is when you become a believer, when you have this new birth experience, it wasn't just that this is an improved version of you. It's an alive version of you. Because the, the scary truth that the Bible tells us is this, that before you were born again or had this new birth, you were dead. And that's a tough pill to swallow. Because I remember back to when before I was a Christian, and I remember not feeling dead. I kind of felt alive. I had emotions, I had dreams, I had aspirations. But I think when the Bible's talking about dead, it's talking about dead in a different way we are. Because when the Bible's talking about dead, illustrate it, it talks about you being dead in sin. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. God in his love and his great mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's like, if this is you and this is your sin placed on you, that, you know, you and God, there's, there's, there's a barrier between you and God. You're now, you're dead to God because of sin. The connection's not there because there's a blockage you can't get this connection to God. But what happened on the cross is that Jesus entered into human history, born a human being, sure, but not born in the same race as us, in that he's a human, but he doesn't follow the Adam line. He didn't inherit the curse because he was born of a virgin. Had to be human to help us, but had to be free from the curse to help us. And our sin was placed on Jesus. And on the cross... That's where I need a, a Britney Spears mic. <laughs> on the cross, our sin was placed on him. And on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in a dreadful moment, the sin of the world was placed on Jesus. Our sin was placed on him. And he, for a moment in history, was separated for the, with the Father that he'd be eternally been with. And he was separated, died in our place on the cross to take the sin paid the price that we should have paid so that we could be forgiven. And in exchange, he takes away our sin and we're declared righteous so that now we have free access, we come alive and we can now know God and have a relationship with us, God. You see, the gospel isn't just that, the gospel doesn't just take bad people and make them good. The gospel's far worse and far better than that. It takes dead people and makes them alive. And that's the truth of the Bible. It's not about just a wee self-improvement moment. This is about a total transformation. You were dead to God. Now you have become alive to God. And what I love is Peter, who's writing these verses, this is what Peter went through in his own journey. You remember Peter right back when he first met Jesus? He was in that boat. Jesus told him to cast the net. He had that huge catch of fish. He realized, you're the Messiah. And he fell on his knees and he said, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I mean, Peter was no, under no illusions of his goodness. And then just, just at the resurrection moment, it was a significant moment for Peter. It changed everything for Peter. Because three days before that, he just betrayed and denied Jesus. He said, Jesus, I'll, I'll die with you even if, even if 
everyone leaves you, I'll not leave you, I'll die with you, he said. And Jesus said, no, no, you'll betray me before the cock crows. <clears throat> and that night, Jesus was betrayed by, by he was denied by Peter. And he, Peter said, I, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And then the cock crowed and he suddenly realized, man, I've denied Jesus. At the moment when I needed to stand with him, I denied him. And he felt like a total fraud. It's interesting when the Easter Sunday arrived, early that morning, two women went to the tomb and there the stone had been rolled aside and there was an angel and the angel said to the woman, recorded in Mark 16, verse 6, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Notice that. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why and Peter? Because Peter was one of the disciples. Why wouldn't you say, go tell his disciples? But he said, go tell his disciples and Peter. Because he wanted them to say, make sure, listen, Peter's still part of this. You see, Peter, who was feeling an utter fraud, who was feeling the worst at this moment, probably Peter, he felt like a total fraud because when it had counted most, he denied he knew Jesus. And here the angel says, just make sure you tell Peter as well. Because this is what the resurrection is all about. It's about giving hope to people who are frauds. And maybe you feel like a fraud. Maybe you feel like you've been denying Jesus, to be honest. Maybe you've lived a week where you've denied Jesus and you lived like he wasn't there and, and just... But you have to understand that, wow, God so saves you. He so wants to transform your life. He so is interested in your life. And you see that great interaction with Peter and Jesus in, in that one of the resurrection appearances where Jesus is on the shore and Peter sees him and he goes to him and, and Jesus says to him, do you love him? Do you love me? And Peter said, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Jesus, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my lambs. And then he asks him again and he replies the same. And basically, Jesus is saying, do you know what, Peter? I know you love me and I've got a purpose for your life. And what you see is Peter goes from being this man who had made huge mistakes, who was, to be honest, full of himself and making all these mistakes, but God takes his life and uses him to make a huge difference in this world. As we read on in the book of Acts, you see the huge difference that God used Peter to make in the lives of others. God transforms and redeems and rescues situations. No person's a lost cause. You just got to give him permission to do the transformation. You got to do it, give him permission to do that renovation on the inside. He's a gentleman. He only comes when he's invited. And I don't know you all tonight, but maybe, maybe one or two of you have never given him that permission to come in and transform your life. So the first thing is past forgiven. Second thing I see in these verses is future secure. Verse three: Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. The Bible calls this hope you have as not just a hope, but a living hope as opposed to a dead hope. It's a living hope. What makes this hope a living hope? Well, the reason it's a living hope is the author of your hope, the source in which the hope is placed, he himself is alive. It's a living hope because how can a 2,000-year-old resurrection give you living, vital, 
empowering, life-changing hope in your life today? How is that possible? Because Jesus is alive today. He's here in 12 Castlebank Street, Edinburgh, Leith. He's here. He's right here in this room. He's closer than the person sitting next to you. He's more real than the person sitting next to you. Don't doubt the person sitting next to you is real. They are real. But he's more real because he created them. He's, and he's right here. He's, he's closer than your very breath. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself. He's in this room. Let's welcome Jesus. Give a round of applause. Lord, let us know you're here. Open our eyes. Let us know you're here. Thank you. You are here. And I, I pray that we would just know that and live in the reality of your presence. We have a living hope because he's alive and because he is currently with us. He currently fuels and actively is involved in our lives. It's a living hope. And hope has a great power in our lives. Without hope, you don't face the challenge as well. Without hope, you can't get through the barriers that life presents at you. Uh, came across some research recently in a study that was done of athletes, discovered that athletes have typically more higher levels of hope than non-athletes. And in, in particular, it focused on uh, women cross-country runners, female cross-country runners. And they discovered that having hope was more of a reliable indicator of success than other things like training, self-confidence, and mood. Why? Because having hope if we lose hope, we cannot press on through the barriers. But if we have hope, we can go through the toughest of situations. And they found that in athletics. And it's true in your life as well. When you have hope, it's essential for life. Definition of hope for us, typically we define hope as wishful thinking or hopefulness or kind of positivity. When we think of hope, we think of, yeah, hopefully it will turn out that way. I, I, I took Michael to see the Chelsea game yesterday. It really wasn't a good game. Uh, but they're still doing okay in Europe. And they've got the Champions League final coming up, or the, uh, or the semi-final. And I say, if I say to Michael, Michael, <clears throat> how are Chelsea going to do? And he might reply, uh, I say, are they going to win the Champions League? And he might reply, I don't know, but I hope so. Okay? And that kind of sums up how we would use the word hope. I don't know, but I hope so. In other words, it's a desire for some future thing that we're not certain at all of attaining. And that's what we think of when we think of hope. It's not a certainty. It's not an assurance. It's not a bedrock. But it's interesting, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something a lot more robust than that. Uh, the Holman Bible Dictionary defines hope in this way. It defines it as hope is the confidence that, God, that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do for, in the future. And the Bible here speaks about a future hope that is secure. It's, it, it's not going to perish, spoil, or fade, the Bible says in these verses. It doesn't change. This hope, this secure inheritance you've got. <clears throat> there was an old guy who went to the doctors and was given a brand new pair of hearing aids. And these were, this was the latest technology, hearing aids. And they, it literally gave him 100% ability to hear, having gone from almost being deaf. And it made a remarkable difference in this old man's life. He came back a month later for his follow-up checkup. And the doctor said, so how's it been going? Has it made a difference? And the man said, this is amazing. I can, I can hear everything. It's just incredible. And the doctor said, wow, your family must love this. And he said, oh, I haven't told them. 
He said, I just sit there and listen to what they're saying. And he said, I've changed my will three times. (laughs) But you need to understand, God will never change his will regarding you. That inheritance that he's written about you, that inheritance about you, he doesn't change. He doesn't change. It's set in stone. You see, see, what you feel is that you feel that, all right, I got going with God. I was all enthusiastic. And somewhere down the line, I, I really made a bad mistake. And you think, all right, God's changed. He's written me out of his will. Does God do that? See, the truth is, you cannot lose by bad deeds what you did not gain by good deeds. You didn't gain this salvation because you were such a good boy or girl. Oh, they've done so well. I'll save you. You're so good, I'm going to bring you into heaven. I know that's what religion says, but that's really not reality and it's not what Jesus says. The Bible is very clear, none of us are good enough. No one is righteous, not one. That's why you needed a savior. If you could save yourself, you didn't need a savior. And then Jesus' death was in vain. And this weekend is a whole sham. And God gets no glory. You get the glory. Because you save yourself, because of your goodness. But the truth is, we're way too far gone. And you, didn't, you weren't saved because you're so good. You were saved because he was so good. You weren't saved in your performance. You were saved in his performance. It's not your obedience that saves you. It's you putting your faith in his obedience on the cross that saves you. So you can't lose by your bad deeds what you did not gain through your good deeds. God has no illusions about you when he saved you. He saved you knowing exactly who you are and exactly how you would live. And he knows every part of you. He knows your past, he knows your present, and he knows your future. And the Bible says when Jesus died on that cross, he paid the price for all the sins you have ever committed, past, present, and future sins, because he sees them in one go. He's God. That's why one act in the moment, even as 2,000 years ago, makes no difference. He was fully God and fully man. Therefore, that act is an eternal act. And therefore, that act pays the price for all sins, your past, present, and future sins. He loves every version of you. He doesn't just love the you that's now, like Steve just now, 35 years old. He doesn't just love Steve as a 35-year-old. He also loved the four-year-old Steve. And he will love, God forbid, that he gets to 50 or something like that, you know, something older like that. <clears throat> he will love the 50-year-old version of Steve. And, you know, the 80-year-old version of Steve, God already sees it. And God already loves the 80-year-old version of Steve. And he died for the four-year-old version of Steve and the sins he would commit at four and the sins he would commit in his middle ages and the sins he would commit when he's 80. He's died for it all and he loves it all. It's every version of you that he died for and it's every version of you that he loves. And that's what the cross did. So your inheritance has nothing to do with you. Your security of your inheritance has everything to do with the one, the God, who chose to save you through that great act. All we get to do is put our faith in him and then live grateful and live out of fruit of what he's done in our souls and that transforming work of God in us. And that's good news. W.B. Hinson, a preacher from a previous generation, wrote about the last year of his life, and he said this, I can remember when a year ago the doctor told me, you have an illness that you will not recover from. I walked out from where I was, and I walked out from where I live, and I looked across at the mountain that I love, and I looked at the river in which I had rejoiced, and I looked at the stately trees that was always God's poetry to my soul. 
And then when it was evening, I looked up into the stars and I saw the great uh, God lighting up his lamps. And I said, I may not see you many more times, but mountain, I shall be alive when you are gone. And river, I shall be alive when you cease flowing. And stars, I shall be alive when you have fallen out of your sockets in the great pulling down of the material universe. Because the truth about your life in God is you have entered into eternity the moment you connected with God. The moment you connected with God, whatever age that happened, or maybe you haven't done that yet tonight, maybe, you become an eternal person. You just, just death's merely a transition. You have to go through it because of the curse. But it has no power on you. He, he took the power away from you. He took a sting out of it when he died in the cross. Said, well, death, where is your sting? He took the sting out because he conquered death. And he justified the wrath of you become you become justified before God. You, he satisfied the wrath of God so that you can become acceptable for all eternity, and that's what God did for you. And this inheritance is so secure for all eternity, and you can rest in that. And like any earthly inheritances you get or you may get, it will come and go, and it will dwindle, and it will decay, and it will perish, spoil, or potentially fade. But not the eternal inheritance. Watchman Nee in the 1920s came alive in faith in China. And he started telling people about Jesus in China and started planting churches all over China. Made a huge impact in China. Started congregations all over the place. When the communists came to real power, they, they, they started crushing the Christians, the Christian movement, and imprisoning Christians and persecuting Christians. Watchman Nee was arrested and he spent the last 20 years of his life in prison uh, and tortured and beaten and threatened and many of his work colleagues and friends and his, uh, he, he wasn't even allowed out to his wife's funeral. It was just a horrendous time, 20 years in prison, but he never lost faith. He died in 1972 and under the pillow was found this note that Watchman Nee wrote and he said this, and I quote, Christ is the son of God. He died to atone for men's sins. And after three days, rose again. This is the most important fact in the universe. I die believing in Christ. So I don't care what's happening in our lives, what we go through. You have to understand, you can, that's a good pillow to lay your head on. You can rest so secure in what Christ has done, that completed work. In life and in death, you have a security in him and the internal inheritance you have. So past forgiven, future secure. And the third thing I see here is present power. Verses four to six. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming, sal- coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. This is an amazing promise that he gives you present power for the life you're living. You see, if you, there's two ways you can get to my house. Either I can give you a map, and you know, you may or may not make it to my house, depending on who's navigating, you or your wife. And I'm not going to answer for you which one would be better. You know. <laughs> Or I could say, I'll come in the car with you and I'll take you there. And that would guarantee you to get to my house. 
because I would say, okay, turn here. Turn there. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'll be with you all the way. Just next turn. Go a bit faster. Slow down. I'll be saying that a lot. Maybe Jesus would be saying that if he was in our lives. But he's, he's, and that's exactly how God comes to be with us. He doesn't just give you a map, the Bible, and say, get on with it. He gives you a map, sure, the Bible, but he also comes by his Holy Spirit and resides in your life and guides you every step of this way to make sure you arrive and you're going to make it. You're shielded by God's power in the present because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that's the truth of the Bible. Last words Jesus said before he left and ascended back to be with the Father. Last words he said, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age, I am with you always. He is with you. He is with us right now. Always. Wow. Wow, what a promise. Now he said that, then he left. <laughs> he said you'd be with us, and he, he floated away. You think, what? But what he meant is, as he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. So he's not just here, he's here. And that's a lot better. When you become a believer in Jesus, and you open your life for that transformation, that new birth, and the past is forgiven, and you have this future hope that's secure. He comes, and the one doing the renovation is the Holy Spirit who comes and takes up residence in your life. And he guides you, and he's going to assure you to get you there. You're shielded by God's power, and that's the promise of the resurrection. So you want your past forgiven? You want your future secure? And you want present power? How'd you get it? Well, let's go back to Peter. Good Friday, Jesus died on the cross. It was a dark day for Peter. He had just denied that he knew Jesus. Through that weekend, the death had happened. Jesus was now in the tomb. And over that weekend, Peter was in despair about the, the hypocrite he had been. And furthermore, the disciples were doors bolted, locked away for fear that the Jewish authorities would maybe then come for them, because that's probably what they anticipated, or the Romans. So they were in fear of their lives. But then Jesus was risen, and everything changed. They were kind of woke out of their dwam. They suddenly realized everything he said was true. He, he's alive, and they changed. They transformed. They became bold and fearless. To the point where after Jesus had ascended on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days, seven weeks after the Passover festival when Jesus was crucified, the next Jewish festival was the Pentecost festival. Seven weeks later, Peter goes from being a denier of Jesus to 50 days later, a proclaimer of Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, he stands up in Jerusalem, right in the lion's den, where all the religious nutters had just, who, had, who had crucified the Christ, they were still on, in their rulership and dictatorial positions in the various hierarchies of their religion. They were still there. They were still pulling the strings in Jerusalem. And in the middle of Jerusalem, Peter stands up in front of thousands of people. He declares, Jesus is alive. The one you crucified, he's the savior. His death actually was God's design to save you. He's alive, he is Lord, he is king. He will return one day. 
and the people were cut to the heart. So he bold, what, what changes a man from being a fearful denier to becoming a bold proclaimer? The resurrection of Jesus. You know, apparently that, so thousands came to faith in that day, the day of Pentecost, and the church grew rapidly to between 18 and 36,000 people in Jerusalem. Rapid growth, huge church, and with only within a mile of the tomb, within a mile of that huge church, within a mile of where Peter and the apostles were preaching, just, a, just there was the tomb. Now, the Jewish authorities, if they had stolen the body away or if they knew that Jesus' body was still there, they would have just simply shown the body and said, stop your nonsense, he's dead. But there was no body. Within a mile of the tomb, tens of thousands of people became believers. So some people say, ah, but surely maybe the disciples stole the body. But the truth is that Peter and the other apostles on two occasions were brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, threatened with the death sentence, flogged in prisons, and spent their lives proclaiming this Jesus who was risen from the dead. Eventually, all but John, all the 12, were martyred for their faith in Jesus being alive. Now, most people don't die for a lie. Sorry, don't die for the truth, let alone for a lie. Surely one of them would have cracked under the pressure of an, an imminent martyrdom. Surely one of them would have said, okay, we, it was a hoax, we made it up. Surely one of them, because they were all separated by that point, surely one of them would have caved in, but not one of them did, because they, what they had seen had changed their lives forever. They could not deny what they had seen, and they, were, they didn't want to look for it, but they were, if it came, they were willing to die for it. And, and they all died for the cause that Jesus Christ is alive. And Peter, what was his message when he stood up on that day, gone from being this weak, cowardly denier to being this bold, fearless proclaimer? What was his message? His message was, Jesus has risen from the dead, and because of this, your past can be forgiven. You can have a hope for the future eternity, and you can have the same power that you see in our lives, in your life. That was his message. And then the people in response to that said, okay, we want it. What must we do? How can you have your past forgiven? How can you have your heaven secure? And how can you have a power in the present? And Peter's answer was this. In Acts 2.38, he said, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I remember back in my life, I remember when I was 15, I repented. I was a little sinner, and I made a choice. I'd been living like God wasn't there. I've been living and pursuing sin, passionately pursuing sin, and God saved me. And I just made a choice one night in a little lane at the back of my house. I didn't know this, I didn't know this is the word, but I repented. I didn't know that word at the time. But I remember turning my life over to God. I remember actively walking away from my sinful ways and saying, that is no longer going to be the way I'm living. From now on, I'm going to be living with your help for you. I made a choice. I repented. And don't mess with God. Don't just try God and see if he works. God's not a commodity. You can do that with a product. Try before you buy. You don't do this with God. He deserves your everything. You need to repent. If you haven't repented, 
you need to repent. And believers, maybe believers, you need to repent. We say we follow Jesus, but we're, we're pandering some sin or some little idol in our life or some lust or some pursuit that you just know is not God's will or some agenda you just totally know is not the will of God for your life. You know that never works out well. You know that. I mean, how many times do you need to test that theory before you realize that's always a dead end? It's always death. Repent. Repent. Wholeheartedly turn from sin. And get baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, go for it. The Bible says it. Get baptized. Baptism is the burial of the past rising into that new life in Jesus. It's been great today to see people get baptized. In both here in the morning and across the Gorgi and then in the afternoon some folks get baptized. It's been brilliant. Seeing people say, yeah, I'm God's. How soon after repenting should you get baptized? Well, on that day, it was the same day. So it was, I'm absolutely serious. If you tonight are saying, I repent, I haven't been baptized, I want to get baptized, then tonight, Steve will take you down to Portobello Beach and we'll baptize you. No, I'll go with him. We'll baptize you. Happy to do that. Or we can arrange it next week in a warm pool. But either way, we will baptize you real quick because we believe in this. So repent, be baptized, and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, I, I, was, I became a believer when I was still part of a, a church that didn't really teach on baptism. In fact, they christened me as a baby, and the idea of me getting baptized as a believer, they, they didn't like that. But, with, but they, they, at the same time, my parents said, if you want to do that, you can. So I honored them, I asked them, but ultimately... They said, listen, if you want to do that, you go for it. And I did. So I got baptized. Because my allegiance isn't to my tradition. My allegiance is to my God. And if God says, repent, be baptized, then who am I to say, but that doesn't work with my tradition, God? I thought I repented, folks. I thought I'd made him boss. So who cares what the tradition says? Just do it his way. Just don't complicate it. Don't theorize it. Don't argue the case. Don't make it more complicated. Just do it like he says. Repent and get baptized. Have you been baptized as a believer. I don't think you all have. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, get baptized. It is the right next step for you. You cannot move forward. Just like the Israelites could not move forward until they crossed through that Red Sea, you cannot move forward until you get through the waters of baptism, and then you can head for your promised land. You cannot move forward. Egypt will always come after you. You need to get baptized. Yeah? Then be filled with the Holy Spirit. I remember... I just now turned 16. I went over to my friend's house one night. He laid hands on my head and he prayed that I'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I, now the thing is, I already had the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, of course. But there's an experience of the Holy Spirit called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's what people were seeing on the day of Pentecost. And my friend laid hands on me and I had this experience of I just knew his presence filling me and I started speaking a language I'd never learned. I spoke in tongues. And I believe that's available. I believe it's available. Get, repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's kind of foundation. And a good house has to have a strong foundation. So get a foundation in our lives. Let's pray. So just take a moment to thank him for the resurrection. 
and then to pray your response back to God. If there's something tonight in particular that stood out in your mind and you just know I need to respond to God on that one thing, or then take a moment to do that. Jesus, thank you that you're alive and that changes everything for us. Because you're alive, you're resurrected, we can have past forgiven, future secure, present power. And Lord God, we say thank you so much for what you did at Easter. Thank you for the amazingness of that message. Thank you, God, for the hundreds this weekend who have heard this message. Thank you for the many who have put their faith in Jesus for the first time. Thank you for those who have been baptized. Thank you for those who have repented. Thank you for what you are doing, God. Thank you, God, this message of Easter, this resurrection message. Our hope, our desire, is that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in this city will repent, will be baptized, and will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced that's going to happen. Not just with destiny, but through many great churches in this city. And we say thank you for what you're going to do, risen Savior, in this city. The city that seems so secular, so hardened to you. Thank you. You're going to move. And one life at a time is going to turn back to you. But God, right here and now, we respond to you. We say thank you for the resurrection. And we repent. We repent for our sins. We turn our life over to you and we give you permission to have your way in our souls today. Just tonight, if you need to repent, then that's your moment to make this decision. I guess in some way we all do for different things, but let me just make it really clear. If you're tonight here and, and you either, for whatever reason, you've walked away from God and tonight this is you, your moment to come back to God, or you've never committed your life to God and you've never really committed yourself to being a wholehearted follower of Jesus. You've never really accepted him and you've never said, come in and renovate my life. Well, why not tonight? What better day than Easter Sunday 2014? If that's you this evening, then I invite you to pray this prayer in response. Just one line at a time, just after me, just pray this prayer and let it be your heart's cry. Jesus, thank you that you were risen from the dead. Thank you you died for me on the cross. Died taking my sin and shame. I was dead in sin. Thank you it's possible for me to be alive through you. Thank you you're alive, risen from the dead. I turn today from my sin. I repent. I don't justify it. I don't mollycoddle it. I don't love it. But rather I want to love you. 
I turn to you. I commit myself to being a follower of yours. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer and accepting me this evening. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Is there anyone like that this evening? Just while we're praying. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Specifically those who for the first time, that's your, your, your decision tonight. You're saying, tonight, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. If that's you, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Okay, Lord, I pray for my, my good friend here tonight who's made that response. And also for anyone else, God, tonight, who tonight is saying that they're turning back to you, Lord. Thank you that you accept them fully and you love them and have a great plan for them. Bless them tonight on this Resurrection Sunday, in Jesus' name. Amen.